0: Welcome to Mom and Up. With your co-hosts, developmental psychologist, Dr. Marty Erickson, and Dr. Aaron Erickson, maternal child health specialist and nurse practitioner.
1: Welcome to Mom Enough, I'm Erin Erickson, here with my mom, Marty, and uh, we have a special guest today, uh, a longtime family friend, uh, someone we've often referred to as the expert in food and nutrition, uh, Dr. Julie Miller-Jones will be joining us today to talk about gluten and nutrition. Uh, Julie is a certified nutrition specialist and an emeritus professor at St. Catherine University in St. Paul, Minnesota, teaching nutrition for more than 40 years. She has won numerous awards and is active in many nutrition organizations and has written and spoken on many topics related to food and nutrition. And we are so grateful to have her here today to talk about gluten and nutrition. And it's something she has some personal experience with, as do I, in that her sister and grandniece and nephew have celiac disease. And uh, we also have this in our family. And so this is a a topic of special interest. But I think it's an especially important topic right now because gluten-free diets have kind of become a fad. And we're going to shed some light and share some uh, research-backed information about when and if you need to eliminate gluten and what that looks like. So thank you so much for joining us, Julie. Oh, I'm glad to be here.
0: So you often hear various people say, I can't eat bread or I can't eat gluten. Who should actually be doing this? And who is simply following the
2: diet du jour? Well, actually, one in every 133 people in the United States are actually have celiac. Then there's some people who are allergic. Uh, a small number are allergic to wheat. And then uh, some people have what's called... Non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and um, those are the people who should. So that's under five percent of the population should be going gluten free. But we have um, in some po- in some areas, you know, ten to fifteen percent of the population going gluten free. And actually, uh, both studies from Harvard and nutritionally, if you don't have to do it, don't, because it is actually harder to get your nutrients and. The gluten is in everything, so in order to really go gluten free, you have to be draconian.
1: Well, that's a very helpful summary there of everything kind of related to you know the diagnoses that might need this, and I think that non-celiac gluten sensitivity is also an important thing to to explore with your provider because. You know, there are specific steps you can take to sort out if that's what's going on. And, um, you know, sometimes people uh, like to point the finger at gluten when in fact it's something else. And unless you really explore that with a medical professional, it can be hard to kind of sort out what's what. And you might end up taking out gluten and really it's something else. And then you're missing, missing the accurate diagnosis. So can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between
2: all of these things? Well, celiac disease is uh, related to a gene. It's the same gene that does a lot of different um, autoimmune diseases, type 1 diabetes, for instance. Um, and so uh, that particular gene uh, has to be in your body in order for you to get celiac. So first of all, you need the gene. Second, you need some kind of stressor or trigger. And should, we used to think of this as a disease of kids. But in fact, um, you can get it from two days up until uh, you're 102. Uh, All you need to do is have the gene, eat gluten, and have some kind of a stressor or a trigger. And the stressor or trigger is an infection or extreme psychological stress. But kids used to get it because they didn't have measles, mumps, rubella kind of shots. And so they would get the measles or the mumps, and then the afterwards would have celiac. Now, um, that's not true. So people can get it at any age, and they can get it from food poisoning, any kind of an infection or stressor. Non-celiac gluten sensitivity was just agreed on by the uh, gastroenterologist as being a thing, in that these people don't have celiac, but they do Um, react adversely to uh, having gluten in their diet. And they're harder to diagnose. And they don't really know. They're working on what parameters they need to do that. Um, They also don't show... When you have celiac, you show certain um, tests that you can do in the blood that show antibodies. And they don't show those. So it's difficult to diagnose. Wheat allergy is easy to diagnose. You have the classic um, antigen-antibody response And the typical um, either allergy kinds of wheezing or allergy um, types of things on your skin. And so that's easier to diagnose. And if you get it as a kid, you actually, uh, almost everybody outgrows it by the time they are 16. So weed allergy, if you get it as a kid, if you get it as an adult, you don't outgrow it for some reason. So that's interesting. So those are sort of the differences. But what happens in celiac is you have the, it, it actually, the, the gluten protein actually, it's actually one of the proteins called gliadin and it destroys the villa of the intestine and it makes the villa completely flat. And so instead of having all these finger-like projections, which give you lots of surface area to absorb nutrients. You have a very, it's like a straight tube with not, so your absorption of most foods is impaired.
0: Well, having four diagnosed um, celiac disease family members, this is a a sobering thought to think about the impact of that. I mean, it really drives home just um, what a major condition this is and how crucial it is for people to get proper diagnosis and to take the steps that will help them deal with it and live a long, hopefully healthy life in spite of having uh, that particular condition, celiac disease itself. Um, Can you tell us what's required for the onset of these various problems? I mean, you mentioned the combination of genetics, um, having the gene, and then having some kind of a stressor or trigger, um, which could be psychological stress, could be uh, from an infection, although that's less likely now that we have, uh, you know. But you have other infections. We always always have
2: viruses. Um, We always have different kinds of things. So, and food poisoning. Is a possible yeah, yeah so it's not yeah. that uncommon for that kind of stressor. Any kind of a physiological stressor could do it.
0: Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good point. And and like a physical injury, I, I'm thinking about one family member, for example, who had a, a fairly significant accident, and uh, you know, not too long before that person was diagnosed.
2: Well, again, because you? in the hospital they may have many different kinds of. Um, things that happen that certainly the body responds to stress by uh, releasing its wonderful armaments of things to um, heal the body and fight infection. And if you have an autoimmune disease, that's what's abnormal. You abnormally, you have an abnormally high response to an infection. And so whether you have type 1 diabetes or sojins or other kinds of things that may also a uh, part of those people may also have celiac disease and vice versa. But it's that stress to the immune system that causes it to overact and then um, it causes problems in the body. So, But the other thing that can happen is that your diet is not very good or not particularly good. Now, I know probably in your case that's not true. But for a lot of people, they develop what we call uh, bacterial overgrowth, and although the gastroenterologists don't like it, the common vernacular is leaky gut. And what happens is that the the cells in the gut are very tightly bound together. And if you have what's called a leaky gut, um, some of the if you have a diet that's too high in salt and sugar and the things that we tell you not to eat, this can um, open up those tight junctions, and then that enables some things that could cause an immune response to enter the body. And so that's, an, that's part of what may be allowing the stressor to actually, uh, like you can have, have it for a really, I mean, carry the gene for a really long time and not show it and then develop this bacterial overgrowth due to poor diet or other kinds of stressors. So.
1: Well, I, I really appreciate you clarifying that. And I, I want to also come back to the piece uh, you mentioned about autoimmune. So celiac being an autoimmune condition. And we know when someone has one autoimmune condition, their rate, risk of having another one goes up. And so, because your your immune system is kind of overreacting to things it doesn't need to be reacting to. And um, as far as kind of the the development and lifespan of of these conditions when they show up, I was really uh, surprised that two people in our family, myself included, had actually been tested for celiac maybe like a year or two prior to when they subsequently were tested again and and positive and had a diagnosis. And so I I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Like this can come on at any point, especially if you have genetic predisposition.
2: Believe it or not, although it took you two years it's getting better. It used to be way worse. The average diagnosis time, if you don't do it as a kid, uh, presenting with gut symptoms like diarrhea or vomiting or just constant pain in the gut um, might be as long as eight to 10 years because the medical profession wasn't ready to see it because the symptoms often are not gut related. uh, My sister has it and she uh, is four foot ten. And um, my father, who was a doctor, took her all kinds of places to try to see what was wrong. And because she was born in 43 and the disease wasn't actually named until 45, um, he, they had her on all kinds of crazy diets and supplements. And they weren't addressing the problem, of course. Um, and she didn't have the gut issues, really, that many people associated it, um. Pregnant women are often diagnosed because they have a series of miscarriages um, because the, uh, they have enough to kind of manage the nutrients of their own body. But when they try to support another life, which is a tremendous physical demand, um, and they aren't absorbing the nutrients that they need, that causes them to miscarry. So obstetricians have gotten way, way better at looking for it when they have a, a patient with miscarriages. Um, And so, uh, but there's just so many kinds of really quirky symptoms that actually are related. So that's why it's just not a really uh, wonderful diagnosis. And the antibody um, immune reaction that they use as a test, the antibody test, is only about 95% good. So there's a 5% source of error. Even if you have the endoscopy If you don't, you might have just one part of the uh, GI tract where the villa are destroyed. It might not be the entire villa. uh, And so if they don't take a biopsy of the right part, even with an endoscopy, you might not. Then if you actually have the endoscopy and you haven't been eating gluten, they won't be able to diagnose you. So uh, there's all kinds of reasons why we get it wrong.
1: Well, that's a really important point because I have seen time and time and again patients of mine who saw a provider, they had a positive antibody test, and then they were just told to go off gluten instead of getting the gold standard, which is the endoscopy, as you mentioned, which is a procedure where they put a small tube through your mouth and then they can collect small biopsies and they go to a specific part. A duodenal bulb is a common area where this. Uh, shows up. But another uh, important, as you mentioned, is a lot of times when the endoscopy is done, they're only taking two samples. And typically for celiac, you need to take four to six from one area, another two from another area, because it isn't like a consistent thing. It's more patchy and, if, and you can't see it. You can't necessarily see the changes when, when the provider's in there doing the endoscopy. They can't necessarily see these changes. So they have to do the biopsy. And so I think it's really important for people to know that so that if you have a positive test, you know, to advocate for yourself and getting that endoscopy because it does matter. And it matters because if you don't have celiac, uh, you don't need to avoid gluten. If you have celiac and you're avoiding gluten, but you're not being cautious about things like cross-contamination, that can be a problem as well. And so people need to be uh, extra, extra, extra careful with gluten and cross-contamination if they have celiac so that they don't suffer consequences like nutrient deficiencies. And, um, and so it's really important to get that accurate diagnosis. And I think unfortunately that doesn't always happen.
2: And you actually want a, a skilled endoscopist because, um, people who don't look for celiac very often may not be, may not find it. And that's, again, another reason why we've gotten better than we were before, but we're still not where we should be in terms of years it takes to diagnose it.
1: Yeah. Well, and I wanted to come back to your comments about symptoms because for me, my symptom was migraine headaches. I, I had a little bit of an upset stomach you know, that kind of just like a low grade nausea for a period, but the biggest symptom was migraine headaches. And interestingly, that was the same for another family member, migraine headaches. And so these headaches were not responding to the usual um, preventative treatments. And so then of course, eliminating gluten um, took care of the problem. But um, I, I think there's over 200 symptoms of celiac. You're right. And
2: Absolutely. And
1: and including what, some mental health symptoms.
2: Yeah, because the, actually the brain fog or depression, all of those are very, very reliant on B vitamins. And the B, because of the villi being destroyed or impaired, the absorption of those would be less. It also, the enzyme lactase uh, lives on the villi. And so uh, many people who don't eat or can't, uh, have celiac don't ha- are not able to con- eat lactose either so they react react both to milk and wheat when um, celiac is when the diet is in place and people villa come back they may be able to um, start drinking uh, milk and milk products with lactose again but so you could ha- all of those things can. Um, the inability to use milk and um, grains make c- or to absorb the nutrients from them, and this then affects all nutrients, you, uh, you can get brain fogs because these are, nutrients are also important to uh, brain health.
0: I'm getting a little brain fog here just thinking about all of this, Julie, um, in part because I'm, you know, in a family where now we're really having to deal with this at every family gathering and and in the individual households where uh, where some of the people with this um, condition are living. And uh, I, the, the thing about milk is, is uh, really fascinating to me because I've, I've had uh, strong belief based on my own observations that milk is really a big problem for at least one of the people um, in our family, who has this disease, and um, and yet, you know, that that has kind of been dismissed because this is not my area of expertise, you know. But um, and I've also been hearing comments about brain fog from uh, from some of the people as well. So uh, and you know, even as a psychologist, I I didn't really know that that was a common symptom. Of celiac disease, so this is all very fascinating for me, and I'll be uh, changing some of my comments and behaviors, and and increasing others as a result of what you're teaching me, Julie. Um, but uh, can you say a, a little bit about the age the ages at which? Um, these things typically occur. And I I guess I don't want to limit this to celiac disease because we've got the intolerance and the allergies as well that are important to mention since a fair number of people have those. But also, are there gender differences?
2: Yes. Um, It's more common in females than in males. Um, The age is, we used to see, in fact, they didn't even look for it in adults. So if you had, if you got this before ninety eight, they would not recognize it as celiac before nineteen ninety eight, um, because they all thought it all happened as kids, and um, and then it would only to be to people with severe gut reactions. So it can be any age; it can be diagnosed at any age, and you just need to you you can carry the gene and not present with celiac. If you don't happen to have the trifecta of the gluten, the stressor. So the stressor is really the stressor, and the uh, leaky gut are really the things that uh, allow the person who carries it to to actually be the thing that is the precipitating event. So you can get it at any age. So
1: speaking of kind of age and childhood, how much gluten uh, in? Kind of can be damaging to a person with celiac and does the amount of gluten in the diet in early childhood matter? Are these related?
2: Uh, people have done a lot of research on that and they don't think it is. Uh, so, but that's where the stat, that's where the status is right now. Uh, they, it's not like peanuts that if you, you know, if you have a peanut allergy, what you want to do is actually feed peanuts early, um, rather than avoid them. But they They thought about it might be uh, feeding gluten early, but that does not seem to hold up right now with what the data say. Um, In terms of how much gluten, if you're very sensitive, it's the size of a pinprick. It's in the parts per million or billion. Uh, Interestingly, a a nun um, who only had the host at church. Otherwise, she was draconian about her diet. And she very sweetly said she didn't think the body of the Lord could hurt her. But, um, but even that small communion wafer once a week, that's way too much gluten. A toast crumb from, and that's why eating in a restaurant is a landmine. Because um, even if they know you can't use soy sauce and things, and all these kinds of sauces that may have just a touch of, of flour in them, um, that just one toast crumb that pops or you have to have a separate fryer. You can't have uh, chicken that's been fried in with something that's had as a, a batter, a flour-based batter. Um, so if you're really sensitive, just an incredibly small amount. And that's why some people on a celiac uh, diet, a gluten-free diet, their villa will grow back. But if you have even just this small amount the villa will not repair itself. So it's just really important that people are draconian about cross-contamination. You
0: know, um, my husband and I um, travel a lot and and with our family. And so, um, you know, with our, including the four members who have celiac disease and um, the restaurant thing has just really transformed our lives and having to be so cautious about um, about just a, a crumb of of cross-contamination, and we um, actually were in Spain recently, and my son and his family were in Italy this summer, and in both of those European countries, uh, we were really struck with how um, how careful they were about celiac and how knowledgeable they were about celiac disease relative to most of the restaurants that we go to here in the U.S., and I know in Spain, they have very strict... Um, I think national regulations, both about the information you provide, about being very careful to have um, very strict cross contamination uh, ways of preparing food and serving food, and the knowledgeable, um, the the. Um, knowledge of the people who served us was just kind of stunning because at every level of service in restaurants we went to in Spain, people were able to answer these questions knowledgeably. And honestly, I hardly ever experienced that in an American restaurant, unless it is a restaurant that where the owner maybe has family members who have celiac disease and they know, but it's kind of a personal or familial variability. And so I really hope, um, and I know you have worked a lot on policy in your career, Julie. Um, I really hope that we Take this on and um, you know do something. I don't think it's going to happen if we just let it happen helter skelter. So um, I really hope to see some improvement in the way we deal with this as as
2: a nation. Because yeah, no, is- I mean For- Europe. Every country in Europe does better. Um, the highest rates, um, higher rates than we have at um, just slightly under one percent of the population having celiac. It's over 2 to 3% in some of the Scandinavian countries. It's higher in Italy. It's higher in Turkey. And other countries, so if you go to, in Ireland, England, most of the countries of Europe are much more aware uh, of the problem. Here, some, I think it's gotten better, but it used to be, if you said, I have a gluten intolerance, they looked at you like you, um, had just landed from another planet, and they didn't know what to do with you, and yeah. so um, so it's very it's getting better, but it's we are we have to strive more to be more like Europe.
0: I'm all I'm all for that, obviously, and but the other question that I have um, is: should the whole family or the whole household? go gluten free and um you know i'm i'm putting two pieces of things that you've said together here because i hear you saying so clearly that the risk of even a tiny bit of contamination is can be a huge issue for the person with celiac disease and at the same time if we are not one of those family members who has it it's it's to our in our best interests to eat gluten and to reap the nutritional benefits of wheat for example and so I'm one of the members of our family who does not have the disease and does not carry the gene and I, you know I really am struggling with how to do this in family gatherings what what's your advice for someone well I, like I think you
2: you've really clearly laid out the conundrum but what I recommend well it depends Um uh uh i'll use my um niece and her family as an example uh they have a completely a cabinet that is completely dedicated to gluten free and so um my grandniece knows everything in that cabinet is something she can eat um in the, among that she has her own mixer her own uh, toaster um, now those things are expensive but the diet is more expensive. And so particularly for um, large families of middle income, it's a real stressor um, to buy everything that's gluten-free because it costs as much, it's getting better, but it's, it costs more, it actually costs more. So it may be cheaper to buy a $30 toaster uh, and a new mixette and a separate set of utensils or go to the goodwill and get new things that are just dedicated to the person who's gluten-free. Particularly if you have a big family, that's the most economical way to do it. Um, The other thing that they try to do is a lot of the, when you have a Thanksgiving's coming up and you want, you make not a bread stuffing, you make a wild rice stuffing that everyone will enjoy. So you have a, a, a grain product that everyone can eat, um, but when they when my niece goes out, she does not have celiac, and um, so that's when she orders the pasta that she loves, and uh, so that she gets to she is not um, penalizing herself or uh, avoiding the foods that she doesn't need to all the time. Well,
0: oh, that's so. kind of what I've done, actually, and yeah. I know when we only had one family member with gluten, with uh, celiac disease, we we had you know bins of all these utensils and appliances and things just for that one person. But now, you know, we have eleven family members when we're all there, and um, and now four out of the eleven have it. So you know, it's it's uh it's getting even more complicated in a way. But, but if you have but, a uh, young child, you
2: experience. A young child, um, what we really recommend is to color code it. So every, you have everything that's in the blue, all of your food will be in blue plastic bins or whatever, or ours will be so that, that the child can always know that's okay. Um, and yeah, then that's great. And, all, and also, you need to tell the preschool people about it and the, the school people and really get them on board uh, and how to recognize the idiosyncratic symptoms that your child might have, because they may say, well, they didn't have diarrhea. So and you need to really instruct them. They'll know they're, they're kind of listless and um, tired. That's can be one of the symptoms, just sort of falling asleep in class or being not as energetic. Uh, and so uh so that they need to know the child and then really um, help to get them to be an advocate to protect the child. Obviously treats coming in for the birthday parties and things are a real problem. And, and then the, the moms uh, or the family can send in, well, when the other kids get this, then my daughter or son can have these so that there's an alternate treat for them.
1: Oh, that's that's so important. Because I think there are social implications of this. I mean, I feel this even as an adult, it's super awkward. You know, someone who maybe a, a newer friend or someone who doesn't know invites us over to dinner. And I have to either say like, okay, this is really complicated. I'm happy to bring my own food. Or maybe they're like, no, no, I'll make something gluten free. And I have to literally like go through, this is what you have to do. So please feel free to not do that. Because unfortunately, I would say, Maybe more than half, if not the majority of the times when I eat at someone else's house, I don't feel well afterwards. Because people just aren't careful. They don't know, like, oh, that cutting board you just used to cut the bread, you can't put
2: the chicken on that.
1: Or they don't even know,
2: well, I'll just take the hamburger out of the bun. You know, they don't know that that's enough contamination. And they really mean well. Um, or Or they don't know that you need to do power cleaning of your mixer Even if you have a fabulous gluten-free cake, you need to do what's called allergen cleaning. And that is even hard for restaurants to do. And they're tested for it and can be dinged by the health department if they can't do it. So um, people want to be nice and include you, but it may not be being nice. Exactly. Yeah. And I,
1: I, I've noticed a real problem when we go to public events and they'll say, oh no, we will have some gluten-free things in the buffet. And I'm like, well, if it's in the buffet, we can't eat it because who knows if someone touched those tongs to their pasta on their plate or not. And so
2: it's, it's really gets complicated. It does. And it is, and especially for a kid, a teenager, it's hard. Um,
1: really, really hard. Well, I I have one more question kind of related to this, because as we shared, we have these four members in our family. And the fascinating thing is those four members have all been diagnosed in the last four years. And this starts, you know, my mind wondering, like, what other factors are at play? Is it, was there some sort of group exposure? What was, what was going in? And now I know you've highlighted many of the causes, but it also makes me wonder, is the incidence, of celiac going up? Like are more people getting diagnosed with this? Tell us about that. Okay. Yes.
2: Yes. And yes, (laughs) it's um, the, the incidence is going up and people are better at diagnosing it. Um, But uh, Joe Murray, who was one of the nation's Dr. Joe Murray at the Mayo Clinic is one of the nation's experts on celiac. And he measured the presence of the antigen, the human leukocyte antigen, um, in the blood of Korean War recruits. And then he measured them um, in the Vietnam War, and then he's measured them subsequently in the Afghan, and showed that in the Olmsted County, Minnesota population, that, uh, that the actually the presence of the antigen has increased. But we know that all autoimmunes are increasing and we don't know why. Uh, so
1: Wow, that's that's a pretty uh kind of scary thought to think it about, is. you know, is. is this, is there something in our food supply? I, I think, you know, what are the factors at play? I mean, are our lives just so much more stressful um, with all the chaos and instantaneous messaging with technology? Like do we not get enough breathing room or, you know, it really makes me wonder. I also wonder as far as celiac, if with all of these people going off of gluten you know, then if they ever reintroduce it, if that alone could be a triggering factor, because you have all these people doing gluten free fat diets, or maybe they're doing an elimination diet and then they reintroduce it, if that could be enough of a stressor to t- turn that gene on. I don't know. But that I don't would know. be a question. I'd I like don't to know answer that either. I do studying. know
2: that that is true for lactose. Lactose um, is uh, metabolized by the enzyme lactase, and we have two of them at birth. And um, one of them we, we lose um, after weaning. And one of them is what we call inducible. And that means that as long as you eat um, some dairy, that the body for most people will continue to produce the lactase enzyme. But those people who say, well, I'm going on a dairy-free diet, and then they go back to dairy, you may lose the ability to induce it. But we wow. don't we don't know that about wheat. We don't think that's the case, but that's where the science is now.
1: And do we know how long someone would have to be off dairy to kind it, of lose that?
2: It it it's very individual, very okay. individual. Well, I'm gonna keep
0: eating my ice cream uh, just <laughs> in hopes that it keeps my lactase <laughs> alive and well. <laughs> I have, that's that's one thing I would have the hardest time giving up.
2: <laughs> and I have milk in my tea every day. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yes, well, and i
0: have I have a little milk in my uh, cappuccino in the morning too, but it's that ice cream that's really my my main addiction, and I have no desire to give it up, so <laughs>
1: Well, it's it's good that you can keep eating it, mm-hmm. and um, and that you know, you can keep that uh, enzyme going by <laughs> by eating <laughs> it. Well, so Julie, this was just uh, so informative. I I just am so appreciative of your wisdom and insight and all the the. Science, you have a knowledge you have about this very important topic. And uh, we're just grateful that you could join us today, Dr. Julie Miller Jones. Uh, and thanks to all of you for tuning in as well. And we hope you will tune in again next week for another episode of Mom Enough.
0: Content copyrighted by Marty and Aaron Erickson. All rights reserved. Visit momenough.com for an archive of all Mom Enough shows and many free downloadable resources on child development, parenting, and maternal health and well-being.
1: Do you think I'll have a show called Kid Enough someday?